All right, good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Good to be together and uh, to open the Word of God together. Let's, uh, let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful to be your worshipers. We're thankful that you have begun in us a change uh, through the new birth and caused us uh, to cease being rebels to you and to be uh, worshipers uh, of you and glad worshipers of you. We thank you that uh, for us it's true that the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And we pray that you would uh, increase this as we study um, in the school year um, what it is to be a disciple and to grow in the responsibilities of um, the Christian life. And so we ask you to meet with us in this hour and um, finish the work that you've begun uh, in us and help us to be an encouragement to each other in this as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this school year, um, discipleship is what we're studying. And, um, or another way I like to put it is the, the responsibilities of the Christian life. And um, the curriculum that we're going through, I think, does a really good job of giving kind of a biblically balanced um same emphasis of scripture of the the different topics that uh, fit into the uh, what it is to be a disciple um, and the responsibilities things that we do um, as um, uh, Christians and so um, this one it's kind of a part two because Dylan did a good job um, last time um, and so I'm going to be on the same subject of suffering and so this response this uh, corresponds to um, in the workbooks responding to suffering. And adversity. Um, I went to school with a classmate, um, in, both in, at the college and at the seminary, and I think now he's actually the president of the college because he's on the faculty there. Um, and he also had a big hand in um, the new translations come out from the Master's College and Seminary, the Legacy Standard Bible, especially in the Old Testament. His name's Abner Chow. He's quite um, quite a person. But anyway. Um, he at the college one of the classes that he teaches is on the book of job and he goes through i think almost verse by verse with um a, a class book of job and i've listened to um part of it and um what is the book of job about what would you say you don't have to answer you can if you want but uh what, what would you say like the first thing that come to your mind if the book what is the book of job about and one thing that he says in the kind of the introduction to it is that a lot of people will say, well, the book of Job is about suffering. It's kind of, that would make sense. Um, and he kind of rebels against that. He kind of pushes back um, against that and says, um, the book of Job isn't about suffering. The book of Job is about what the rest of the Bible is about. Um, it's about knowing God. Um, and so he calls um, the book of Job the prequel to the Bible because it introduces all the topics of um, the Bible, everything that Job is wishing for, the, the rest of the Bible actually um, tells you. But the book of Job is about knowing the character of God. That's what the rest of the Bible's about um, as well. And suffering is the context for, it's importantly in Job, obviously, the context for knowing God. Job came to know God through suffering in a way that he didn't know God before in a deeper way. And so suffering is a context for knowing God. And I think it's the same with you. Um, suffering is the context for you um, for knowing God. And so um, it's kind of hard to overestimate. <laughs> I probably said this about a bunch of the topics for, for um, discipleship like prayer or others, but it's, it's hard to overestimate how important suffering and responding to suffering is for the life of um, discipleship and responding well to suffering is one of the responsibilities of the Christian life. And in a sense, the whole Christian life is measured by how you respond to suffering. There's, there's no part of the Christian life that isn't touched by that and comes into focus uh, by that with um, suffering. So um, at the outset of, um, of this message, I'd like you to think of maybe one thing in your life or maybe two things in your life, but maybe just one, um, that you could wish were different if you had your way. And it's probably pretty easy for you to do. Um, and that, that is, uh, the suffering that you have, 
uh, in your life. Um, it may change. Um, there may be something else that the Lord gives you that is uh, suffering um, as well, but it probably comes readily to your mind. You probably probably think about it often, actually. Um, and so it kind of meets you right where you are. Um, something in your life that you could wish were um, different. And uh, with that in mind, with that in mind, because I don't want this to be just totally abstract here, but with that in mind, where it touches you um, personally, I'd like to give you kind of a theology of uh, suffering. But it's at that point where God is teaching you something about himself that he could teach you in no other, no other way than through that suffering. And so I think a lot of times we like to think of suffering as the thing that, well, if I could get that out of my life and I could really live like a Christian, then I could really uh, have an impact for the Lord or um, do the things that I'm supposed to be doing or grow if I could just get rid of this suffering that's an obstacle to me. And it's actually the opposite. Um, the suffering is actually the place where you can honor God the most. And um, it's it's the place where God is it's not the obstacle to remove to actually really get to the business of knowing God, but it's uh, the place at which um, God is showing you the most about um, himself. So with that in mind, just I'm going to make just kind of a few points about suffering. And the first point that I want to make about suffering, and I'm not just saying suffering in general, but that thing that you thought of, or two things um, that you thought of, and that is God is in control of suffering. God is in control of suffering. He's in control of that thing that you thought of, or those two things that you thought of that you could wish were different in your life. God is in control of suffering, even suffering in which sin is involved. Um, even suffering in which your sin might be involved, in which you're, you might be reaping some of what you've sown. Um, but God is in control of all suffering. There's no suffering that he's not in control uh, of. Um, and let me show you just a couple of passages on that. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God is in control of your suffering, and He's and because of that, because he's in control of it, he's working his purposes through it. Romans chapter 8, verse um, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So uh, Paul's reminding the believers in Rome uh, of this. God causes not some things, not the things that he's most able to work towards his purpose, and then he kind of forgets the rest. No, he uses everything. He causes all things, and it's actually the whole, including suffering, that uh, he's using to work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. That's probably the one of the best passages in the New Testament uh, for this, that God is in control of suffering. And I think one of the best and most vivid passages in the Old Testament um, is uh, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. Genesis is the book of beginnings, and it introduces um, pretty much all the major themes of Scripture. Everything you need to know um, is uh, is found in Genesis, the main things. And certainly this is is taught in Genesis, that God is in control of suffering, and especially in the life of Joseph. In the life of Joseph, and at the end, um, Jacob dies. Joseph's brothers—they're kind of older men at this time—and they, they, it dawns on them, "Oh no, J Jacob's dead. Maybe, maybe Joseph's going to take revenge. Maybe that's what's been restraining him." And so Joseph has to explain to them, "No, I'm, I'm at peace. I'm at peace with you. I'm at peace with God. I'm, I'm not even thinking about revenge." But he explains why he um, thinks that way. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So suffering happened to Joseph. You know, he had years robbed from him. He, he was put into a pit at 17 years old by his brothers, sold into slavery. Things went downhill from there. And the Lord uh, remembered him, rescued him uh, when he was around the age of 30. Um, but... Um, Joseph had reason to be bitter against his brothers, reason to be bitter against the Lord for allowing this uh, suffering into his life, so to speak, um, or could have thought he had reason to. Uh, but he understood kind of a theology of suffering. He had known God through uh, suffering. And so he says about his brothers, um, you intended evil against me, but God intended it for good. God intended what 
for good. Um, well, the word must refer back to grammatically the evil that they intended. It's a, the word it is feminine and singular. You can't see that in English, but you can in Hebrew, and it goes back to the only feminine and singular word, which is evil. Abstract nouns like evil are usually feminine, and this one is. Um, so you meant evil against me, but God meant that evil. Same one that his brothers meant against him. God meant it for good. And you'll notice the same verb is used for the brothers. They meant evil and God meant it for good or they intended it. They intended evil against me and God intended that same evil for good. You planned evil against me, but God planned it for uh, good. And um, so the evil that came upon Joseph by his brothers sinning against him um, was totally infused with God's purpose. God meant it for good. It was also totally infused with the brother's responsibility. God doesn't take any blame for the evil uh, of it. And I think that's important both uh, to say, and you can kind of see that in um, the scripture itself. I don't know if I'll read this all to you. It's in Genesis chapter 37, where you can see the brothers planning evil against Joseph. And um, they, they have a lot of time to plan before they actually do it. Here comes this, they see him from a distance. Here comes this dreamer. Let's, uh, let's kill him. You know, and so they have time as he's walking towards them. And then, well, let's just throw him in a pit. So then they throw him in a pit and then they eat lunch over the pit. You know, what should we do? What should, well, let's make some money off of it. Let's not just kill him. You know, and, uh, so you can see them and it, it talks about the different brothers bringing in different ideas of what to do, how to sin against, um, Joseph. Nobody was, um, pulling their, uh, pulling them into it. Nobody was forcing their hand into it. They did it all freely. In other words, they did it all voluntarily. They're, they did it all of that because they wanted to uh, do it. And for that reason, they are responsible. They didn't say, well, I actually don't want to sin against Joseph, but you know, God predestined for me to do it, so I, I have to do it. They weren't saying that. Um, they were doing it out of their own heart. Um, and uh, voluntarily, and that's why they're totally responsible. That's why they need to be forgiven for it. And that's what uh, Joseph uh, talked about, forgiven from the Lord, because they're the doers of that evil. And yet, God is sovereign over it. God intended it, the same evil that they intended, God intended for good. And mysteriously, God actually intended it first. Um, and uh, His he um, works all things after the counsel of his will. That's Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, verse 11, and so God is free in the choices he makes in an even different sense in, in that he can choose whatever he wants uh, to choose, but he's not the doer of it. There's mystery in that. There's mystery in that, but uh, God's sovereignty is not a substitute for man's responsibility. One is not a substitute for the other. So when you say God is sovereign, he intends evil for good, man isn't responsible anymore. No. Or when you see that man is responsible for what he does, God isn't sovereign over it anymore. He didn't choose it. He couldn't have chosen to do differently. No, uh, they're both together. They're both 100%. They both couldn't be more true and are 100% true and are truly extreme, that God is totally sovereign over everything and that man is totally responsible. And both of those are really important and have a lot of implications and both should be taught um, to the max, uh, man's responsibility and God's uh, sovereignty. So God is in control of uh, suffering. Um, let me just show you a, a few more examples of that. It's really throughout scripture. I just chose here some kind of vivid um, examples of this um, where it's taught in in connection with specific events and not just um, in general, although it's taught that way too in scripture. But uh, 1 Samuel chapter um, 2 and verse 22 is about Eli's sons who were wicked men. Um now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. It's kind of a, kind of a striking way to put it, I would say. Um, you might expect it the other way around, 
the Lord desired to put them to death for they would not listen to the voice of their father. That, that would make a lot more sense um, if God weren't sovereign over everything, including even sin. Um, but it's put in a way that emphasizes God's sovereignty. They would not listen to the voice of their father voluntarily. Nobody forced them to that. They, they didn't want to listen to the voice of their father. Uh, but there's a, also a reason behind it, God's sovereignty for the Lord desired to put them to death. A similar one, Judges chapter 14 and verses um, 1 through 4. And this is in the life of Samson. Um, a life marked by many sins, and this is one of them. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our, all of our people that you take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. For he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. So uh, Samson desires a woman, but she's not an Israelite. She's a Philistine. And, and the Lord told him really clearly, you're not to do that. You're not. So he, he, what his parents told him was the right thing. Um, they wanted him to marry an Israelite, not uh, a Philistine. And Samson persisted, not because anybody was forcing his hand, uh, because he wanted to. Uh, he's responsible for what he did, and yet... Um, it was of the Lord. The Lord is sovereign over all things that occur, um, including even evil, including even things where sins are involved in them. And that's true of the worst sin in history. What's the worst sin in history? Well, it's killing the Son of God. That's the worst sin in history. And Scripture makes a pretty big point of the fact that God is in control of that uh, sin. And if he's in control of the worst sin in history, then he's also in control of um, of lesser sins. Um, as well, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter says, This man, the Lord Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So this sin was planned by God. It was, it was a sin to crucify Christ, an almost unspeakable sin. Um, they crucified Christ. They did it with their eyes wide open, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They did it out of envy. They knew what they were doing. Um, they did it full well knowing it, um, and what they, uh, were doing, and it's, uh, it's a wicked, it's hard, they wanted God dead. That's the point. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yet God predetermined and planned it. They're totally responsible for it. That's why Peter's preaching to them, and he's preaching to them their sin because they need forgiveness. He's actually preaching forgiveness to them. Uh, you nailed him to a cross. It's kind of an encouragement. There's forgiveness even for the worst sin. Uh, of that one. Um, Acts chapter 4, verse uh, 27, similarly, for truly in this city they were gathered together, this is the saints praying here, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So they did it, and yet there's a plan behind it. God is in control of everything, even suffering, even evil, even sin, he's in uh, control of. Um, and like I said, scripture actually makes much of that. For example, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 23, where the Lord says to Judas, uh, or in Judas's hearing before he um, acts, act, Matthew 26, verse 23, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The son of man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So it's written that someone would betray the Lord. The Lord knew who it would be enough to even identify who it was. Um, it was Judas. Um, Judas is totally responsible for what he wanted to do and will suffer the consequence because of that responsibility. It would be better for him if he had not been uh, born, and yet it was written. It was planned uh, by God, and so God is in control uh, of it. Okay, so that I'm trying to just make a simple point. God is in control of suffering. God is in control of uh, suffering. Um, if God decided for that thing... Um, that you could wish were different, um, he could remove it because he's in control of it. There's, he, it's not like uh, that's in your life because God's boss told him that it had to be. <laughs> he doesn't have a boss. 
uh, and he's in control of evil, or like there's some necessity or something like that. Um, the Lord could uh, remove it easily, but he's in control of suffering. And I've, I've tried to go to kind of the the extreme of what you might think God isn't in control of. You might think, well, when people sin, well, God isn't really in control of that, but he actually is. So he's in control of all your suffering and even suffering that um, is in connection with somebody's sin, even suffering that's in connection with your sin. God is in control, total control uh, of that. So why does God use suffering with his children when he doesn't have to? He doesn't have to. Um, so why does he do it? He chooses to do it. He chooses to use suffering in the life of his uh, children. He's not going to do it forever. There's not going to be suffering in eternity. He's, he's going to stop using it. And it's his choice. Uh, but he's using it now. So why does the Lord use suffering in the lives of his children? And uh, suffering actually doesn't, it almost doesn't fit, at least it doesn't fit eternally for a child of God. You know, what, what uh, fits eternally for a child of God is blessing. Um, and not suffering, but for now it's very fitting. It's very fitting. Why is it fitting? And, um, I, I found the answer, I think, in my Bible reading. Um, but in order to have this answer, you have to look at it in a mirror. It's the reverse image. Uh, because it's also the answer to the question, why doesn't God just judge the wicked right away? Um, there's some who are not going to be saved. Why doesn't God just bring judgment uh, on them right away? And I think it's the same answer. And I'm thinking of the 10 plagues. So Exodus chapter 9 and verse 13, let me read a few of these uh, passages. And then I'll try to explain what I mean by this. Exodus chapter 9 and verse 13. This is right in the middle of the plagues. Okay, Exodus 9, 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now, he starts to talk hypothetically. He starts to talk about something that he could do, but he's not going to do. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and, and the word for pestilence in scripture is just the word death, um, and it can mean a disease, but anyway, it's the same word. Uh, if I put forth my hand and struck you with your people with death, with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power. And in order to proclaim my name through all the earth, still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. And the thought is this, and he returns to it a bunch of times. God wanted there to be 10 plagues. And it took a long time. It took, it took a matter of months. There's the barley harvest, and then that was ruined by the hail. And then um, the later harvest was ruined by the locust after it came up. So that everything green was gone. It took place over a matter of months. It was prolonged. God could have done it all at once. In fact, he could have just killed all the Egyptians. That's it. That would be, it'd be kind of a short story. Exodus would be a shorter book. But no, there, there's ten plagues. And so he says that uh, to Pharaoh. I could have struck you all um, at once, but I've allowed you to remain in order to make a display of my power over you. That's why I've uh, actually sustained your life so that the plague comes for a day or two and then Moses comes and removes it. And all the frogs are gone, you know, or whatever, or the lice are gone. Okay, and now there's relief, and then there's another plague coming, and then there's another plague uh, coming. And the Lord is um, helping Pharaoh to get by all these plagues to make a display of his power, actually his power in judgment. Uh, Moses returns to this point, Exodus 10, 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son, of your grandson, how I made a mockery of the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Or chapter 11 and verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. I don't want to have just one wonder of deliverance. I'd like for my wonders to be multiplied times 10, uh, the 10 different plagues. And so that's why um, uh, all of this is going to be prolonged. So, so my question, 
was why does God use suffering in the lives of his uh, children? You have to look at it in a mirror, reverse image, to get to try to get the point I'm trying to get across to you. God prolonged Pharaoh's life and the life of uh, Egypt because he wanted to make a display of his name, of his character, and specifically of his power. God brings suffering into your life. Now let's flip it around. Uh, because he wants to make a display of his character, of his power, and specifically in your case, of his love, of his love for you. And so that's why he doesn't just bless you, just give you all the blessings all at once. And that would make a lot of sense. No, he gives you blessings mixed with suffering to make a display of his deliverance of you to make a display of him sustaining you in the midst of suffering, to make a display of you knowing him and knowing his love in the midst of uh, his suffering, to make a display of him causing you to be an overcomer. That's every Christian is an overcomer, meaning overcoming in the midst of uh, suffering. And uh, God gives that to you out of his love and chooses to bring suffering into your life to cause you to be uh, an overcomer and to know him and, and actually to know him in a way that you couldn't know him before and to know his love in a way that you wouldn't know him before had he not brought suffering into your life. So it's a similar reason. Um, the Lord uh, prolongs things. He stretches things out. He gives both good and bad, kind of like he did to Pharaoh, you know, giving bad and then good, delivering him out. It's a, you got to turn it on its head for a Christian, but it uh, gives you both good and bad to make a display of his character. And that's what he's doing in your life. That's what he's doing even for the thing that you're thinking of, um, that you could wish were different. If you kind of could have your way, that's what the Lord is doing. And that's why he's brought it, uh, into your life. Okay. Um, I said that suffering, um, is the context in which we know God. It's the context for the life of the Christian. And basically the whole Christian life comes into focus, sharp focus for suffering. Um, and it's, it's more dim, in areas of your life in which you don't suffer, uh, probably your, your whole life should be integrated, but that's kind of the tip of the spear is uh, the suffering. And so I thought I'd look at something for the rest of our time that's just very basic to the Christian life and how that is seen in suffering. Um, and so I'm talking about the three virtues of faith, hope, and love, faith, hope, and love, and how suffering brings those virtues out of you and brings a special focus on those uh, virtues. Um, faith, hope, and love are known as the Christian virtues, and there's a reason for that. They're in Scripture together as a triad a whole bunch of times. There is definitely an emphasis on faith, hope, and love together uh, in Scripture and especially in the New Testament. So those are the Christian virtues. They're often contrasted with the classical virtues, and meaning the virtues that were emphasized by like the, the Greek philosophers and kind of Western culture before um, the Bible had its influence. Um, and they also have four virtues. I think they're sometimes called four cardinal virtues. Do you know what those are? Can you guess? I'll just tell you. Uh, justice, which is righteousness. Um, prudence, kind of wisdom to see things through. Temperance, which is moderation, a balance, not doing things in the extreme. And finally, courage. So justice, um, prudence, temperance, and courage uh, in the wisdom of man, those are the things that make um, a virtuous person, is those uh, four things. Faith, hope, and love are things, but they're not, they're not really worth mentioning. Um, trust, trusting someone, loving someone, hoping in something, those are part of life, but according to those classical virtues, those aren't quite... Um, important enough to be mentioned along with those four, justice, prudence, temperance, um, and courage. Well, the Bible also mentions all four of those, justice, prudence, temperance, and courage. Um, but the Bible kind of inverts the order. What really makes a virtuous person is faith, hope, and love. And if you have those at the foundation, then you're also going to be able to add justice, temperance, um, prudence, and courage. Those are important too, but they're, they're not, they're not mentioned in the same way in scripture as faith, hope, and, uh, love. So, uh, faith, hope, and love kind of encompasses the whole of the Christian life, of the virtuous person, of the disciple, and they have a special place in suffering. And I wanted to start with faith 
It's time to start with faith. Um, This is um, what causes you to be an overcomer is your faith. Um, And I talked about how the Lord wants us to be um, overcomers. That's what he's giving us in the midst of uh, suffering. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Okay, every Christian is an overcomer. This is one of the verses that teaches that. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. That's why faith is so important. That's why faith is uh, mentioned uh, in this. If you want to be an overcomer, it's going to be through trusting, not in yourself, but in the Lord. Um, and that's uh, the, how you are. Um, you overcome uh, by faith. Um, and so suffering brings out faith and kind of causes it to be the one slender thread that holds <laughs> when suffering seeks to sever you from God or appears to want to sever you from God or when Joseph's brothers or Satan, that's their purpose in the suffering. Yeah, that's the evil that they intend uh, to use for you to totally despair of God and uh, for you to be totally severed. Uh, from God and uh, you almost are by suffering and then that slender thread holds and it's faith and it's trusting in the Lord, maybe when everything else has failed. Um, and so that's why um, you're an overcomer by uh, faith. You can see this in the um, uh, in the miracles of Christ. Um, they emphasize faith. They emphasize faith. And it's uh, suffering. There's there's a great deal of suffering that comes before those uh, miracles. And they bring about faith, sometimes a small faith, you know, where the, the Lord rebukes his disciples. How small is your faith? You know, it barely held, but it's there. <laughs> it should grow, but it's it's an actual, it's a real faith. So he's sort of rebuking and commending them at the same time. Um, Matthew chapter 8, verse uh, 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold... There arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. So they're suffering, and then it also looks like the Lord doesn't care. He's asleep. And when they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing, he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? So the suffering brought about faith, even a small faith. Save us, Lord. We're perishing. I don't think they would have done that if the suffering wouldn't have come. Um, and then the Lord um, rebukes them for their little faith, thinks their faith should grow, um, but but it also, in a sense, commends them that they, they do have actual faith that is going to grow. Um, uh, chapter 9 and verse um, 20 and 22, 20 to 22, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus turning and see her said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. And so here you can see how suffering brings about faith. This woman was suffering for 12 years. That's a long time. Maybe some of the things that you thought of um, that you could wish were different in your life, you've wished that for 12 years or more. That's a long time for um, suffering, but the point of it was it brought about faith. In fact, she sought out Christ in a way that she wouldn't have if she had not suffered for those 12 years. Um, maybe maybe she would have been doing something else if she hadn't been suffering in this way for 12 years and Christ would have been there and, okay, I'm, I, I've heard about Christ, but I'm, I'm busy. you know. But because she uh, suffered, she went to find him. She wanted, she, she was obsessed with this. If I could just touch the fringe of his garment, that's all I would need. Um, I will get well. And so the suffering in her life brought about faith in Christ. And he commended her for that uh, faith. And, and it's the same uh, with us as well. Um, first Peter chapter three, I'm sorry, chapter one, verse three to nine is kind of a foundational passage about suffering in the New Testament. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There's the hope, okay? Um, and it's it's pretty central in our salvation. We're born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, 
undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, um, um, the salvation is going to get to you. God is making sure of it by his power that it's going to, uh, you're, that you are going to get everything that the Lord has prepared for you and he's protecting you for it. It says that in uh, verse five, that's uh, eternal security. The Lord is protecting you, but notice how he's protecting you. You who are protected by the power of God through faith, through faith. That's the way in which he's protecting you is he's protecting your faith so that your faith holds. And how does he do that? How does he make sure that your faith holds? Well, he tests it with suffering to show that it's real and to show you that it's real. And so he talks about this. In this, you greatly rejoice. Oh, sorry. Verse, well, where am I? Um, yeah. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, that's the thing that, that God is protecting you through faith, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So um, suffering comes to test your faith, to show it to be real, to bring it to the forefront, um, and to cause it to grow as well, and to remove all the impurities from your uh, faith. And so uh, suffering comes... Some of the characteristics of suffering, um, it's for a little while. It's temporary. All suffering is temporary. It's all going to be removed. Some not until um, we see Christ face to face. Some before that, but it's all temporary. It's all necessary. Suffering, if necessary, there's no part of suffering that's wasted. Um, and it's various. You've been distressed by various Trials. The word is actually um, many colored. In other words, there's no stripe. There's no uh, there's no brand of suffering that isn't included in this. That isn't sent for the purpose of showing your faith to be genuine and uh, causing you to stand and be protected for the inheritance that is sure to get to you to be protected by the power of God through faith. So suffering brings about uh, faith, and your faith is shown in the midst of uh, suffering. Um, second is hope, and I'll be a little shorter on this. Um, Romans chapter 8, verse 24 and 25. It's kind of a classical passage on hope or a definition given of um, hope. Romans 8, 24. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So in hope we have been saved. Again, like hope is very central to salvation. Um, in hope we have been saved. It's hard to um, make it more central than in, in that um, statement. Um, what else about hope in this passage? Hope sounds a lot like faith in this passage. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? Uh, for if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Hope is contrasted with sight. Well, that's also uh, faith is contrasted with sight. In Scripture, we walk by uh, faith, not by sight. Uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So uh, faith and hope sound um, a lot uh, alike in that they're both contrasted with Sight. In other words, if you see something because you have it, you don't need faith anymore because you just, you have it. You don't need to believe something that you don't have and you don't need hope. You're not ho hoping for something that you're going to get in the future because you have it in uh, the present. And so hope here is contrasted with um, sight. Um, so that's what's, and that's why it says in scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, but now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love because faith and hope are going to come to an end. 
when we when we see the Lord face to face, when we get the inheritance uh, that is ours, faith and hope are going to come to an end, and love is going to continue uh, forever. Love is really what it's all about, um, and that's what's going to characterize our life for eternity. Not faith, not hope, but love. And that's the point of that uh, hymn. Love never fails. Love endures forever beyond some of the gifts that are going to cease, even beyond faith and hope. So now abide faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is uh, love. So that's something that's the same about uh, faith uh, and hope. What is different about faith and hope? How are they different from each other? They're both contrasted with sight. They're both only uh, temporary. Um and uh, the most helpful that I've read on this is actually in Calvin's Institutes. He does a good job, and I'm, I'm not going to quote it, but I'll just sort of paraphrase as well as I uh, can remember. But he talks about faith believes what it doesn't see. Faith believes the promise of God. Hope enjoys the good of that before it comes. And so they work uh, hand uh, in hand. Um Hope is the expectation and enjoyment of the good of what uh, faith uh, believes. And faith is such a fragile flower. It's almost quenched out by uh, suffering that it needs hope and the joy that comes uh, from hope, from enjoying what you're uh, believing in before it gets there. Faith needs hope to come and buttress faith and nourish faith. So faith, faith is kind of all important. Uh, for it, but hope is important too because of the way it uh, comes alongside of faith and uh, buttresses um, faith. And it's important enough to be mentioned alongside of um, faith and love. Faith, hope, and love. Okay, um, Romans chapter 5. And this is a great passage because it mentions faith, hope, and love, and then it mentions them in the context of suffering. So Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a sense in which faith is singled out among these. It's our entrance into the Christian life, not hope, not love, faith. Um, uh, having been justified by faith alone, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Okay, so it's not only the entrance into it, but we actually stand by faith. That's the thing that suffering kind of uh, tests and isolates even. Uh, and that's kind of the foundation is uh, faith. We've obtained our uh, introduction into this grace in which we stand. We stand it by believing in grace. That's actually how we stand in the midst of uh, suffering. And in addition, we exult in hope in the glory of God. So faith, that's the main thing. Hope is the additional buttressing thing. We exult in hope. Then he talks about how that um, sufferings, tribulations, um, help us to hope. And not only this, not only are we standing by faith and exulting in hope of the, the glory of God, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. There's those sufferings. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. We've already, we're already exulting in hope, but the trials that come and show perseverance and show proven character, show that you're an overcomer, increase the hope, bring out more hope uh, that's able to help the faith. Uh, and so that's why we exult in our uh, sufferings. We understand what they're for. Proving, uh, the, the tribulations are bringing about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. It's not a false hope. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we've come to faith, hope, and then finally love. Love here is kind of mentioned as the guarantee that the hope is real. The thing that you're enjoying before it comes um, is not a false hope. It's a certainty. It's a hope that does not disappoint. And the proof of it is because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. And, and this is um, seen in the midst of suffering. Uh, especially that you actually experience what it is to be loved by God with the unique kind of love that only God has, which he talks about that next. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a kind of love that man doesn't know about because uh, we only love the things that are worthy of love. That's what we're taught to do. 
uh, I talked about those classical virtues or whatever, and um, that's the only kind of love they would see as virtuous, is loving something that is actually worthy of loving. <laughs> uh, if you love something not worthy of loving, that would not be a virtue at all. But uh, God shows his love for us in loving us when we were enemies, when we were not worthy of loving at all. And uh, when you know, when that love is poured out in our hearts, meaning you don't just know it, but you have an abundance of it so that you're able to show that love to others um, as well. And you know him that way through suffering. That's actually what faith grasps onto in the midst of suffering. You're believing in God's love for you of that kind of love, a love that is not deserved um, at all. And you have an abundance of that uh, kind of love. That's what shows you also that your faith is real, is when you actually experience that kind of love before the thing that you're hoping in and the thing that you're believing in uh, comes to you uh, at all. So love is kind of a proof uh, as the, uh, for the faith and the hope. So there, there you can see, I think, kind of the whole Christian life or the whole virtuous person or the whole disciple in the midst of suffering and what's brought to the forefront is faith, hope, and love in the midst of, um, in the midst of suffering. Okay, last scripture, Romans chapter 8, verse 35, another high point in uh, Romans. Who will separate us from the love of Christ. And then he starts mentioning some of these sufferings. Maybe some of the sufferings that you thought of for yourself fit into these categories. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness? And the nakedness here is not having enough clothes to keep warm. The famine is not having enough food to be full. The nakedness is not having enough clothing to keep warm. Or peril. Or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, all these sufferings, nakedness, famine, persecution, peril, sword, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. By grasping hold of his love. That's the way we overwhelmingly conquer. That word overwhelmingly conquer is just the word for overcomer. It's actually the word Nike, like Nike shoes. It's about winning. Um, it's about overcoming, but this is, uh, this has that Nike word, uh, to conquer, to be an overcomer, but it has another word in, in front of it, hooper, hyper, um, overwhelmingly, uh, conquer. In other words, you not just uh, squeak by with a win, but you have, uh, victory with victory to spare. You're an overcomer in the midst of these sufferings, uh, with more to spare. How? How do we overwhelmingly conquer in the midst of suffering through him who loved us by grasping hold by faith of his love in the midst of that and then being transformed. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. And here's the only way you're going to find that kind of love, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Um, you're not going to find it apart from Christ. If you do, you'll find it through some sort of deserving of your own. But uh, Christ, the love of God in Christ is the love for the undeserving. That's why he's a crucified and uh, risen a savior. So um, we come uh, full circle. Faith, hope, and love. We started with faith. And um, it's a faith actually that grasps this kind of love. So in that way, we're coming full uh, circle. Faith, hope, and love now abide these three faith, open love, but the greatest of these is uh, love. And we also come full circle in a second way. We started with this, that God is in control of suffering. That teaching that God is sovereign, that he's in control of suffering, will do you no good until you grasp by faith also his love for you, his love for you. And then it'll do you a lot of good, um, but it won't do you any good um uh, until you grasp it in faith of his love. He's in control of suffering and he loves me. And then you have something to hope in and uh, something to believe in. And then you're actually transformed by uh, that love um, as well. Okay, let me leave you with this briefly. And um, Tim emphasized this and what he wrote in the chapter and ended with this. And I wanted to end with it uh, too. Um, and that is the idea of making a commitment to honor the Lord in the midst of suffering. And, um, you know, the Christian life 
doesn't run on our promises to God. It runs on God's promises to us. Uh, but I think there's a place for making a commitment, making a promise to God. Uh, Ecclesiastes talks about making vows to God um, and says, let your words be few. It'd be better to to not promise than to promise and not pay um, the vow. And so the promises of God are many. There's tons of promises of God in scripture to exercise um, our faith. Um, but it doesn't say let your words be none or zero. It says let your words be few. In other words, think carefully about what you commit to and what you promise to God. There is a place for making a commitment to God. And certainly we're not to avoid doing that out of fear. You know, if you, if you're trusting in God's love by faith, trusting in his empowerment, empowerment by faith, then it ought to make you bold to make a commitment and then to pursue it with every uh, diligence. So what my challenge for you today would be to resolve to make a commitment for that suffering, that thing that's in your life that you could wish was different to commit that what that is going to bring out of you is not bitterness, not an improper response, but actually is going to bring out godliness in your life, going to bring out nearness to your father, nearness to the Lord's love. So let me leave you that challenge. I won't ask you to like come up here, you know, or do anything like that to make it or raise your hand or something like that, but just in your heart to commit to honoring the Lord in the midst of the suffering that he's given to you, that it would bring out faith, hope, and love. And uh, the Lord will help you to honor that commitment. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us of your character, of your love. Pray that you cause us for um, suffering to bring out the response of faith, trusting uh, in you, trusting in your promises, trusting in your working, a faith that is uh, supported and nourished by hope that we cherish, that is dear to us, uh, and is something that brings us uh, joy. And it's a faith and a hope in your love that we know already is, is uh, real and that we've experienced because your Holy Spirit has poured it out uh, in our hearts. Um, your Holy Spirit has poured it out, this love, in our hearts because we trust in it for ourselves. He's also poured it out in our hearts, so much of it that we're able to give it to others as well and to be transformed by this love. And so we pray that um, to the life of faith, hope, and love that's brought into focus, even in the midst of suffering, the life of knowing you, that we would add all the virtues of the Christian life, uh, righteousness, prudence, temperance, courage, um, uh, witnessing uh, to others, uh, joy, peace, gentleness, all these things that uh, are part of the life of a disciple, that we would grow in all these things and uh, that they'd all be based on faith and hope and love. And so we trust you in the midst of suffering, and we ask all these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen.